The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is football journalist Graham Hunter. Graham is at the pinnacle of football journalism and has a contact book that reads like a Panini World Cup sticker album. And a quick glance through the guest list of his brilliant big interview podcast tells you all you need to know about his credibility and level of expertise. How does a Scottish guy find himself in Spain's dressing room just minutes after the World Cup final, standing beside the King of Spain and Rafa Nadal? You'll find out and you'll also hear us talking about Graham's career and his knack for following his instinct and being ready to snatch his opportunity. From Gerard Piquet to Pedro Alves in Barcelona, from Sir Alex at Aberdeen to amalgamating with the Dutch press at the parading of Pierre van Hooydonk at Celtic Park, Graham's insight and commentary into his own personal story is an entertaining and enjoyable one. If you're a football fan and you haven't listened to the big interview, then you're in for a treat. It's an A to Z of European football and you'll find it everywhere you listen to podcasts. Graham's books on FC Barcelona and the Spanish national team, published by Backpage Press, are also first class. So if you need something new, look no further. If you're listening to Blethered for the first time and you enjoy what you hear, You'll also find episodes with Rose Riley, Scotland's trailblazer for women's football. She played for AC Milan and won the World Cup with Italy. There's also Jim White of Sky Sports, Simon Ferry of Open Goal and Laura Brannan who has worked in media at Celtic, Copa 90 and now at Motherwell Football Club. So you might enjoy those too. If you enjoy this one, feel free to share it. Cheers. So you've got to be the only Scotsman who's got vast experience of World Cup winning, Euros winning and Champions League winning dressing rooms. You've been doing this job for a long time. Do you still pinch yourself or is it, does it become a wee bit normal? Is it a mix? No, and there's no false humility here at all, uh, Sean. Like the things you're talking about, I only enjoyed one of them. I was in the World Cup winning dressing room in Soccer City. And I was in the European Championship winning dressing room in 2012. And I was in the Champions League dressing room in 2011 at Wembley. And there's only one of them that I really enjoyed. And the the World Cup dressing room, I can't tell a lie. The the day itself, the, 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 here's the first one, sorry, the fucking mental, sorry about that, but there's going to be lots more of those. The absolute fucking mental day that we had, um, the things that happened, the the hurdles that even having got that far as a broadcaster, TV producer, the the trials we had to go through, the way in which people reacted to me, Fernando Fernando Llorente or Pedro, the the, the fact that, you know, please God, don't let it happen to me in the middle of Sean's broadcast. I I thought my heart would stop dead when Arjun Robin ran through and I was on the pitch right next to dugout and I so wanted Spain to win. I've thought subsequently, Sean, you know, this 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 whole adventure starts for me going to the World Cup in 82 as a sort of loyal, excited member of the Tartan Army. And I've honestly thought to myself, if that had been Scotland, 
nil-nil in the World Cup final and Arjun Robin was running through and Jim Lane, would I have felt more pressure, more, would I have been praying any harder? And I wouldn't. I, I don't care what people think of me. You know, I loved that, that bunch and I loved having been integrated in it. I, I loved travelling the miles with them. It was an ex- just an extraordinary experience. And South Africa was extraordinary. And as, as usual, I did... I did outlaw Josie Wales things. You know, I, I took <laughs> immense risks, some of which I can't go into here because there are still statute of limitations and I might get the jail. But um, to, to be inside that dressing room, and, and you probably know this because I know you do your research, but I, I sort of, you know, the, the, the game is won, the celebrations are beginning, but my cameraman and I have to work our way through security up this long tunnel, sloping lot, the longest tunnel at any sports arena I've ever seen or been in. And we, we, we go up this long tunnel to the a sort of vegetable reception area, tiled area that is not very big. And and to the right is the, the door to the Dutch dressing room. Because sometimes dressing rooms are out of sight of each other. You'll know that. And they, they bear no relation to one another. And so the, the door to the Dutch dressing room is over to my right hand. And the door to the Spanish dressing room is over to my right hand. You can see across and probably it'll take you 26 firm paces to go from one to the other. And then there's the, the glass door at the back of the wall that takes you out into the innards of the stadium. And and I've said this before, but I have to tell you the truth because I, I sometimes think that the people filming and making my life up there, you know, I, on some days they take magic mushrooms and some days they don't. Because all, all I can hear in the background is... And there's buzzing security everywhere. It's a World Cup final. The players are outside. There's roars now. And as it gets louder, as I'm, I'm turning left to go into the dressing room, my attention is called. Now look, and down the corridor, coming through the glass door, are about eight or nine Scouse Scallies in Johannesburg, <laughs> in Soccer City, in the centre of what should be the third or fourth most secure place on the planet at that stage, it being herded by uh, four or five huge South African riot cops. And they're all, yeah, we ain't coming back if this is how you see this. This is disgraceful. This <laughs> I like, they're, they're English. They're fucking scouse. They're running wild in the centre of the World Cup stadium. They've been nicked. They're giving it a ring of fire. And and scally humour about this is disgraceful. It's just the way you treat visitors. And you're like, how, <laughs> how have they broken into the Walker Stadium? And why does this always happen around me? It always happens. So we, we that passes by and I'm like, it's just literally you could the listeners can't see me, you can see it. I, I just go <laughs> and on we go and into the dressing room. And we're in the dressing room waiting for them to come in and they come in. And there's, there's, there's not many outside the squad and the, the coaching staff. There's the, the, there's the, the then queen, the old queen, who's now you know, off the throne. There's her son, who's now the king. There's uh, the, the, one of the three tenors who, who got turned over for... Placido Domingo, wasn't it? Pla- yeah, he was less than, yeah, Placido Domingo, yeah. Bad, bad man, the baddest man in that tradition. Um, <laughs> Philip Koku comes in to... to Speak to, to congratulate guys who played with at Barcelona. 
the fair play. And there's Rafa Nadal. Mm. And he's got giant Spanish. You know, his, you know his cheekbones are like beachy head. You know I mean, they're, 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 you know, literally, you could, Greg Luganis could stand on his cheekbones and dive off them. They're so big, <laughs> aren't they? And, and he's got them painted in gigantic Spanish flags. He's got a, Sp- a Spain scarf wrapped, tied around, you know, the back of his head, his forehead, like a, you know, like a bandera. And he's crying so much that the dye in the Spanish flags has run down to his <laughs> his chin's all red and yellow because he's crying so much. See, um, after, so I was in London, London City Airport flying up to Glasgow in July last year and uh, Rafa Nadal had just been, I'm sure he'd been beaten by Federer, it must have been Federer, um, at Wimbledon semi-final and I'm in WH Smith and I was on the phone and I've just went, is that fucking Rafa Nadal? But he did <laughs> play- <laughs> But <laughs> the reason for, I mean, it's it's not and he totally he's <laughs> he's totally turned round and like quite a bit of shock no shock because I'm oh sure he's goes, I fucking is what of it no, he, no, he went, of it he's on the phone he went is that Sean McDonald um, but the the mental thing was he'd only just been beat like forty five minutes previous and I'm going that's impossible for him to have got from Wimbledon to London City he got on a flight to uh, he got on a flight to Ibiza. I don't know how he's got there that quickly, but I was completely taken aback. Sorry, I've, 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 I, think, I've I think I think we're talking helicopters. <laughs> that, that, right, it must have been that's what I thought. It's got to be in a helicopter. That's how the other one percent live. Um, I know, but no, well, you, I'm glad you did that because you know that it, it's not just you know segueing, but you captured exactly how I felt like that that feeling of how. And it happens to us in daily life. It doesn't have to be a World Aye. Cup final or a, Wim- a Wimbledon finalist loser. But that, that things when you're just like, well, hold on a second. But, and I think that livens up our adrenaline. It livens up the, the, mm-hmm. the sort of the daily weft and weave of our lives. But I'll, you know, to, to, to answer your question properly, that even now that I can describe all of those things and I can describe the fact that, that the Spain players were subdued you know, once they came in, there was a little bit of singing and jumping up and down for about a minute and a half. And then they all sat down and went on their phones, you know, after a mm. World Cup final. I was completely shocked. But but to, to get to another your question, I was not shy, but you said you pinched yourself. I, 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 I hugged the wall like a 14-year-old at a school disco, man. Because I was like, my, my, my point was, it's not I don't belong here because they trusted me. They'd taken a vote to say it was okay, I could get in. I was the only journalist, no Spaniards allowed in. And, um, you know, I had a job to do, Sean, that I was intent on doing well. But I, as somebody who played, you know, amateur hockey, amateur football, somebody who would be competitive if I was playing darts or whatever, it's all right to know these people. It's all right to think you might be able to earn their respect for your professional skills and to, to try and earn that mm-hmm. when you're in when you're in that sanctum of their you know, the greatest moment of their lives I just thought oh, I don't fucking belong here and mm-hmm. I hugged the wall and I directed my cameraman about what, where I wanted to go what I wanted to do and then just let him free a little bit because gradually they were like yeah here who's there mm-hmm. and I, I was back against the wall until you know I said it before but it's true there's this a brand of beer that I don't particularly like. I won't slag them off in case they ever sponsor us. But <laughs> there's a brand of beer that's that's quite weak. 
and uh, it was being passed around and the players after 120 minutes and all that adrenaline they were getting you know one one scoop and they were pissed but Pedro comes up with a bottle of Budweiser in his hand hands me the Budweiser and said thanks for everything <laughs> again I was like what the fuck <laughs> Are you, and I, make, I always make the joke about maybe thought I was Howard Webb but yeah, <laughs> you know I, I, I'm, I'm about a foot shorter and not in this great condition and even then so what Pedro was doing, going, I tell you what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give that guy a bottle of buds so he feels a little bit relaxed and part of it. Yeah. You know, Sean, literally, what the fuck? That's incredible. Do you think that, you know you're saying that they let you into the inner sanctum? Uh, apart from the fact that you've obviously cultivated relationships over a long period of time, which we'll touch on in more detail. But do you think it's because there was a degree of perceived neutrality you know you technically don't have a dog in the fight they don't know about your well maybe they won't know in detail about your affection and connection to Spain I, d- I don't know the the, the 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 correct way to answer that the best thing I can say is that you you, you have to get lucky so mm. you're right that you know by 2010 I'd been in Spain eight years living and uh, the, 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 some of them had seen me on Revista de la Liga and mm-hmm. seen me not screwing up. Some of them had done one-on-one interviews with me, but the tournament won it. This is why I always say to people who maybe want to become, um, want to be involved in the media, or, or who are in the media, and want to get on better with footballers. There are footballers who don't like me, um, and there are footballers with whom I've fought and argued. But in the main... A footballer who listens to you on radio or television and thinks you've talked sense is likely to change overnight. Mm-hmm. And in the main, a footballer who's seen you do their miles, because Sean, in, in my opinion, one of the most underrated, undervalued, although Jamie Murray in the podcast agreed with me and slagged me off and said, listen, footballers' lives are, are easy compared to the rat-tat-tat world, you know, conveyor belt of the tennis. So bring it on anybody who wants. But we've been taught as consumers to, to view footballers as commodities that, you know, maybe like a bottle of wine that you take out of your cupboard occasionally on a, on a weekday night, but on a weekend you'll take out of your cupboard. But when you're at work, a bottle of wine is out of your mind. It's not there. It doesn't really exist. That's pish. And footballers, the, the, the training schedule is hard. But it's fun too. You turn up. There's a camaraderie. The wit, fun. You you you're putting yourself in peak condition. You you're, you're working on tactics. You, you, the group is good. The group is bad. Whatever. But when you're in competitive mode and you're playing far abroad and and the game finishes at eleven o'clock and then you're still in the stadium at half past midnight and then you've got a forty five minute journey to the plane. And then you've got fifty minutes before you can take off. Then you've got three hours back and it's six o'clock in the morning before you land and it's nine o'clock before you sleep, and you're due at training at 10, mm-hmm. and you do that over and over again, or you're in a tournament, and it's it's like um, enclosed, no family, no friends, compete, train twice a day, travel, travel long distances, lose sleep, uh, don't get to eat what you want, the pressure, bam, 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 bam. When footballers, and now it's largely banned, but we've, been, we've over many years, we've, we've flown with them, we've lived with them in hotels, when they see you keeping pace and when they see you 
They know that you were on the flight that landed at five in the morning. They know that you've probably had an hour's sleep. They know that you've got to be there an hour before training in the morning to start filming. Mm-hmm. You know that they, that they know that you film. They know that you're then queuing up to get for interviews at one o'clock that day. They probably don't know that you then edit for two or three hours. You snatch a sandwich. And if there's double training, by 5, 5.30, you're back at the training ground an hour ahead of them to get your position, to make sure that you're set up. You film for another hour, hour and a half when it's a double session. Then you go back and um, cut and edit, and you might be free to eat at that limit. Or when you fly, or all this kind of stuff. And that builds their trust, Sean. That they, they, they see you. You're not some prick who's given them four out of ten for a match <laughs> valuation or somebody who's who's written an article without a, a, a bad headline on and they feel you're an alien, you're, you're attacking me, I can't trust you. They go like, oh, these guys are all right. And if you and again, look, let's say you're traveling with them. You've got tons of kit and you're the last man on. Like They've got mm-hmm. tons of kit, but they've got kit men. So you've got to get all your kit, huge amounts of kit, onto the plane, make sure you're on time, You'll be slaughtered if you hold them up, rightly so. You've got to sit at the back, keep out of their way. You've got to make sure that they feel in the plane that you're not spying, all this kind of stuff. If you tick all those boxes, then eventually, when you're in the World Cup hotel, World Cup final hotel, and you're staying in the team hotel on the the morning before uh, the World Cup, and you're having a beer with a couple of Spanish chums, and you're writing your column, and you begin to talk about old football, and then the president of the Spanish FA comes up, who liked the beer. And he sits down to have a beer and there's four of us talking about him. Miguel Ángel um, played in the first Spain team to beat Scotland at Hamden in about, let's call it 73, 74. So we begin to talk mm-hmm. about the players I know that he played against and, and memories of. And he kind of melts. We have a couple of beers and, and it's now two-ish. It's time for him to go up his lunch. I go, President, can I get the dressing tomorrow if you win? He's like, yeah, you're in there. Don't worry about it. And Fernando Hierro says, no, that's why some of the captains get to say yes or no. And they say yes. I don't know why. But if you don't do the miles, if you don't prove your worth, then then you get a no. And it just happened that the stars collided, Sean. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's something I'm going to touch on later as well, about the notion of luck and good fortune. The, the idea of things just falling into your lap. But I, I, I will come back to that because I don't believe it's... It's as clear cut as that, although it often does appear that way. I have to give a mention to Vicente Del Bosque. Uh, I don't know if you know what I'm going to say here when he sat down for the draw if I had a Euro 2012. So for anybody who's unaware, Vicente Del Bosque was the Spanish national manager and he sat down to do his TV interview and he said, where is my Scottish friend? He brings his luck. I hope he's definitely coming to Poland. So you've obviously ingratiated yourself with him uh, incredibly well as well. What was he like? Sure, where the fuck did you get that from? And mate, no stone unturned, by the way. I wouldn't be doing my job if I couldn't find this information. <laughs> I'm good. This is just this is me just gunning. For... Me. So I was going to say this is me gunning for your job for whenever you decide to chuck it. So at this at this rate, you can I'm going to fucking pass it straight on to you by about Saturday. <laughs> he calls he calls me to this day. He calls me Machetti, uh, which is sort of nice guy, good guy. And he's fascinated by the fact that I never wear socks. So whenever we meet each other, he'll just say, show sure, don't miss your ankles. <laughs> and there's nothing kinky about it, I promise. And I, I don't know where we began to uh, like each other, but the really big deal, the really big deal was, as, as everything revolves around Aberdeen and Gothenburg, 
um, we're standing, I forget now to be absolutely sure, but we're either in Johannesburg or Pretoria. It might have been Ellis Park. I think it's ahead of the Paraguay game. And, you know, tournaments are odd, odd beasts. They, you know, they have to be organised, but around the edges, it can be a little bit ragged. So when you're in the, the stadium the day before the game and the teams are training, in, in, in front of the cameras and where the suits are, often a lot of the suits are fucking jackasses. Mm. There's a lot of activity and security and triple rules and passes and bibs. And, and then you'll get into the corridor where the, the main, everybody forgets about the main guys. The suits are like, uh, my pass is really important. These rules, are, this is my stadium. And you get into this fucking tizzy of forgetting it's the managers and the players that can, yeah. and the fans in that order. Mm-hmm. So we're standing in this, in this corridor in a rickety stadium with, you know, some panels off the wall and some fucking wires hanging down and stuff. And it's the, it's the corridor behind the press conference. And the, 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 the sort of, the pendulum is uh, a couple of players are top first to the, to the assembled hordes of media or the managers waiting and then it'll turn around. So I don't need to be in the press conference because I've pinched a studio, literally mm-hmm. improvised a studio, pinched a studio. Um, and I know I'm going to get Cis Fabregas and PK in the studio once they're finished the press conference. So Dabowski is just leaning on the wall, one foot up on the wall, doing nothing. And he's waiting to go into his press conference. The corridor's empty apart from him. And he said, ah, Paul, let's have a chit-chat. And um, so we, we, I think my opening line was, no, no, he says to me, so uh, it's another moment, Sean. Mm-hmm. So what was it like under apartheid? How, <laughs> he knows I'm not South African. Tanned though I was, I, I'm... I'm patently not black African. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how, how do I answer that? You know, if it's anybody else, if it's somebody in Scotland, she just fucking go through them. <laughs> Corpse laughing and you go right through them. I thought, they sent to Del Bosque, will I? Oh, no, I won't. So I was like, well, mister, uh, what I understand was, and I explained a little bit about apartheid and how it functioned and thanks for Cox Academy, Mr. Reed, Modern Studies, uh, teaching in 1978. So <laughs> I do my best and then I go, mentally I'm going, let's get out of this conversation as quickly as fuck. So I go, um, I know where you were on May the 11th, 1983, do you? He's like, is that change of time? Was, no. We were sitting in the stand in Ullavai Stadium in Gothenburg watching my team beat your team 2-1 in the Cup of <laughs> final. And he's like, ah, oh, okay, this is a trap, was it? He said, I should have been playing there. I, I got injured. I should have been blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you're a great team. He said, can you name them? I was like, oh, you beauty, bring it on. So I'm like, Augustine, Met Hodds, Gallego, Isidro, Santillana, Juanito, uh, Stilica, whatever. And, and so I'm going through them all and I'm thinking, geez, I've got seven or eight and I'm fucked now. And literally, right. as I'm screwed, the doors open and Piquet and Cesc walk out. But about maybe 25 feet away from us. So it buys... It, 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 it makes it look like I was going to name all 11, which I wasn't. And 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 Dabowski turns and goes, well, lads, lads, come here and speak to somebody who knows about football. <laughs> so I clicks his fingers. <laughs> and the friendship started there. PK mm-hmm. and Seth walk up to me. I take them to the studio. I say, lads, I've got an idea. I'd like 
um, Jerry, I'd like you to interview Seski's your best friend. I won't do the interview. You will. They, they went together. They went, oh, no, we've done that before and we didn't do it very well. We're not very good at it. So I went, okay, that's fine. Sat Seski and I sit in the chair opposite him like, a, like an imbecile. I let Gerard Piquet stand behind me. And the interview for about six minutes goes really well. And in the middle one, one answer, Sis Fabregas, corpses, just pissing himself. His PK is taking his, his, his old boy, unzipped, taking his old boy <laughs> and rested it on my shoulder. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I'm, Sean, I'm still getting fucking physiotherapy for it now. <laughs> I was going to say like that, that Max and Paddy joke. How come, it, how, come he had his, how come he had his dad in the studio with him? That, I know that's not. I know that's not what you're referring to. When you say he left his old boy on your shoulder. Maybe, maybe that's where they took the line from. Maybe that's where they got the. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! So that was an eventful day. So anyway, as they say, <laughs> Peaky's an interesting one because you've 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 got a very good relationship with him. But you met him. I think you were playing fives, and he'd been playing with his pals, and uh, you just kind of got chatting. Is that how that relationship started? Yeah. It's really odd. We, we played up in, um, there's only, the only one person I can remember, Andy Mitten was in that squad of those guys. I want to it, talk about Andy Mitten later. If... I should be able to tell you, I should tell, be able to tell you what others, but yeah, if you, it's up above the, the there's a sort of army fort in uh, Pedralba's up just about where uh, Palo Real is. Yeah. And it's the fort where Joanne Laporta was um, I think imprisoned when he breached his national service. All right. And um, just above there, there's a really quite a nice um, seven-side complex with um, good, good, good Astro, as it was called back in the day. And um, yeah, we played and we walked down the road, and there was a, what you'll recognise as I think we see less of them now, but they were called Frankfurterias. Uh, yeah, yeah. The basic Aye. concept was it did serve you a hot dog and a beer. Yeah. And we're just standing outside having hot dogs and beers about nine at night. And there's a group of lads about 10 feet away and one of them is PK, yeah. So we, we begin talking, Andy and I, with them. And uh, yeah, it, it built from there. I can't remember the other reasons that we got friendly. I see I see dramatically less of them now than I did before. Before mm. I had this, you know, I've still got a phone number. Before I had a phone number, I could WhatsApp. Um, he trusted me. I, I suppose... I'd met him and interviewed him. You know, I, I, it, there are things I do and don't want to say about him, but there were, there were a couple of incidents where he's been allowed nights out by the club and and he's taken it to the limits and beyond. And uh, he did something so for example, one I, can, one I can properly tell. Well, one I can properly tell, because it's, it, it was fair. When they win the league in... Um, Sean, I've got to get this right. Whatever they've won. Is this a bit up at Grand Hotel La Florida? No, whatever they've won in 2011 ahead of Wembley. I can't remember if they, I suppose they did win the league, didn't they? They didn't win the treble because they got knocked out mm, the cup yeah. by Seville. So they've wrapped up the league. I'm just thinking hard here. And and Pep says to them, on I think partially on the advice of Manel Estiarty, but at any, any rate, Pep says to them all, right, this has been a hard couple of seasons and stressful. We've won the title. Wembley's a distance away. I actively want you to go out. You know, go out in the lash if you want. 
go and disappear and see your friends and family. But but beat it. Don't think about training. Get the, the stresses and strains out of you. If, if you want to go on the absolute lash, you've got three days to do that. Fine. No rules, no limits. <laughs> now, when you say to somebody like Gerard, he takes it literally. So by the time it's the day before their last league game, which I think is Deportivo Latina. Anyway, the long and short is there's a Saturday media day to plan for the following Saturday's Wembley. And uh, Gerard presents himself as the rules allowed, still a little bit under the influence. And therefore our interview is cancelled. We have to do it the next Sunday at tea time. We have a laugh with him. There's nobody there. It's done in the camp now instead of the training ground. I bring him a jersey sign and I think I give him an Aberdeen jersey, but whatever, there's a laugh. And in the in the World Cup final, I, I, I'd known him because he, nobody was helping him to get the nets. And the FIFA Blazers were cheating like a piece of dirt. Now, they just won the World Cup. And as far mm. as the FIFA Blazers were concerned, a player who was no longer in the tournament because officially it had ended an hour before was to them just like Drek. And I hate that actually. And that made me so angry. Mm. So I got involved in helping Jerry to get the goal nets. And that ended up in just an extraordinary series of incidents inside the World Cup stadium. Nearly got me sacked. But I did. For, for several years, he was the Barca player, Spain player. I knew best that I was closest to, that I filmed most with. And and I enjoyed his company an awful lot, eh? He seems like a right top guy. I know what you mean about taking it too far. I remember um, being on a night out, actually, and he was nearby down at Barcelonetti, you know, like round about Pasha, Shoko, and all that area. And he gets his car pulled over with the police and all that, and he was in quite a wee bit of trouble. But uh, he does seem like a top guy. The we You touched on the Gothenburg final of Aberdeen, so I suppose half an hour in, we'll go back a wee bit to to sort of starting out. So you did you grow up in Aberdeen, or were you just born there? Yeah, I suppose um, I, I was I was born in Aberdeen in 1963, and I stayed in Aberdeen until I was about 18. No, that, yeah, but 18 or 19, um, when I left to move to Glasgow, and um, yeah, it was it, it was a it was a, a good thing for me in some ways in that there was many many things about childhood that I liked. I lived out in the West End in the outside where. You know, there were a lot of fields. Um, albeit there was even then, there was a lot of building. You, there was building sites you could play on. It, you could you could get wild in the in the woods. Mm. You could you could invent games. You could, there was always green spaces to play with a football on. We, 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 I don't know how many generations after me kept this on, but you know, we hail or shine playing with a leather football until until the knees of our trousers were ripped, until we were covered in mud. Um, just the smell of a leather football is one of the smells of childhood. It was a it was a brilliant place to grow up. But Aberdeen was good for me in another way, two other ways. Sean, one, I, I never understood the the Aberdonian feeling about you know this, which I'd equate to Barcelona. You'll recognise it. This is heaven. We've got everything we need. Our little corner is everything. The outside world is nothing. We're wealthy. We've got sea. We've got countryside. We've got mountains, and nobody's like us. We're the best. And I was like, I don't have to. The world is bigger. That drove me to think. I want to see. You know, I want to go over the the horizon a little bit, see what what's out there. But secondly, or third, sorry, thirdly, the, the again fluke. And this is not an unknown story, but just fluke. 
yeah, Sean, I've got the 1978 Scottish Cup final, you know, where it guts me to talk about it, but we're second in every competition to Rangers. Cheated out the League Cup final, in my view. Um, we lose the, the league to, to Rangers and we go down to the Scottish Cup final. We don't turn up, don't play, lose 2-1 and come back. And it's been such a special uh, season that we all gather at Dodry to, to thank Billy McNeil for a great season. And at that stage, he's our manager, you know, in the future, but there's been rumours in the press that maybe he's going to go to Celtic. And he stands there in his leather jacket in the middle of the pitch on the Sunday after the cup final hand in, in Pataudry. A pretty full Pataudry. Does the well done in fact, right? And then holds the microphone like you can see me doing now, like you're doing now, and, and goes, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, I've loved my time up here, but the rumours you've heard the press are true and we're not Celtic. And I felt bad because he was loved. Mm-hmm. You, you'll, you'll understand why, but Big Caesar was... He'd impressed everybody around the city with his personality and his the magnitude of his abilities. Mm-hmm. And and he'd given us, albeit second was nothing to him, second now feels nothing to me, he'd given us a taste that something was good was happening, saying good place. And then Alex Ferguson signs, and he moves mm-hmm. in next to my best friend, Graham Runcie, who lives in Quarry Road. It overlooks the school pitches where I would play more hockey at that stage. When we won the title, you know, we were... We were the best side in the, in the region. And and Alex Ferguson gradually in part imposes his personality on my psyche mm-hmm. simply because watching that team, I, I spent the last two weeks building a UEFA documentary on Gothenburg with a friend of mine, David Snowden, who you might or might not know, uh, who works for Noah. And, you know, I've interviewed Tony Hewitt and Simi. And today when we're recording, uh, I'm going to choke when I say it, it's two years to the of an anniversary of losing Ty Cooper, mm. who was born in, who, who was brought up in my village. He was the, his mum and dad owned a little shop for a short while we were at school together. I adored him. But I've been interviewing William Miller, Johnny Hewitt, um, Big Alan McLeish, and Eric Black, talking about Gothenburg. And I tried to explain to them that their behaviour in going and warming up in front of the jungle, warming up in front of the enclosure, going and beating Rangers and Celtic and Glasgow, beating them up at our place in 1982, beating Rangers 8-1 on aggregate over two weekends. 4-0 on the last day of the season at Dodgy and 4-1 at That changes you, Sean. Yeah. That changed my... Like, for example, when we start the top couple, you'll tell me, because listeners will know, how the hell you're brilliant Spanish and Catalan, you live between Scotland and Barcelona. The same things must have infected you about, I want to show that I can do anything. So you asked me about growing up in Aberdeen. The, the, probably the two single biggest things that, that, that Aberdeen gave me was one, a desire to go, this is not where the world begins and ends. Mm-hmm. But two, if there's a world out there, I can I can conquer it. Because I've seen <laughs> Eric Black and Simi and, and Tati Cooper and Willie Miller doing it. And, and, and Fergie's grim, get out of my way, nothing will stop me, mm-hmm. infected us, infected me, changed me without any shadow of a doubt and, and so without all that I wouldn't have gone to London I wouldn't have taken the risks the chances that I've taken in my life and I wouldn't have you know whatever it's not a grand thing it's my thing I'm not boasting about it it's the things that I've gone through and I've experienced that make me either happy or satisfied or still determined mm-hmm. and, and that that goes right back to Alex Ferguson Willie Miller Bobby Clark Tim Lake Big Scooby and all them people Sean, I just consider myself to be a product of 
of magic that's been sprinkled on the path all the way through it life. Mm-hmm. The uh, I suppose that'll bring me to the, the the sort of thing about luck that I kind of wanted to talk about. So there is the notion of luck and good fortune and that things can just you see it quite a few times fall into your lap, like but throughout your career as well, by your own assertion, you've had a lot of this luck along the way, but you obviously have to put yourself in that position. You have to be there. You need to be, I don't know, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a game, whether it's a, a sort of networking opportunity um, to then intercept that good fortune. And it's another thing where people say, it's all about who you know, or you know, it's all about where you are, if you're right time, right place. But I think it's probably 10% that and 90% having the sort of presence of mind, the wherewithal to actually apply it, to to take that, you know, to go that extra step. Um, it's that whole... You know, the more I practice, the luckier I get, kind of thing. You know, I just I kick around, do my thing. I have a voracious hunger for, for life, for enjoying myself. I think Keith Richards probably stole my life. And I've never <laughs> forgiven him. Uh, that's genuinely how I feel. But that talent or that, when I say luck, I mean it. Because it, it often, yeah, you... <clears throat> If you're timid, if you don't, if like the, one of the things that the people who, in my industry now, who sadly don't have budgets to be sent to a match, an interview, even a press conference, even a junket, mm-hmm. if you don't go, things don't happen. If you do go, not only do things happen, there's an exponential curve whereby if you're the right type of person, if you've got the right attitude, if you've got the right work ethic, not things don't just happen. It's like, how has that happened? Why has that happened to me? How 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 brilliant is this? You need to recognise it. You need to have the cojones to go after it. And I know a lot of mm-hmm. people who do a lot, but but no way do I behave sequentially. No mm-hmm. way do I fit into the mould of an ordinary writer or broadcaster or journalist and I don't want to be and also I don't I don't want the other path that I didn't tread on but when you talk about a hard like for example I don't know how much this influenced me because I think I was like before but before I went into full-time journalism and when I'd been already writing features and columns and interviews in the Sunday Times in Scotland from about 1990 till about 94. Around about 92, 93, I was still working as a press officer at Glasgow Caledonian University and, and writing part-time, enjoying that combination. Um, and and we, we the, the university made a partnership with Paul Stewart Racing. Paul was one of um, Jackie Stewart's two sons, Mark and the other. Right. And um, what it meant was we could get engineering students and um, programming students into work placements in Milton Keynes where post-suit racing had its base. And increasingly what we found was that if Jackie Stewart was involved, he didn't want to just leave it. Typically, he pushed the envelope. He's like, all right, well, look, if if I'm going to take your students, I want to know more about the university. So they, I think they made him, they gave him an honorary degree. And I had to script write for him his acceptance speech, even though... You know, he is, um, he has that reading uh, disorder whereby mm. his dyslexia means that he can only read something with his own clues and fills and, and 
little bit of script I had to give him, and I had to give him just a way that it didn't look like gibberish to him. But yeah. I, I, he flew us down in his private jet to Milton Keynes. He and I once drove Milton Keynes to London. And what I mean by that, I listened to him. And I asked him about that, the luckier you know, I get, the more I practice. And I asked him to explain to me what it actually entailed. And and during that time, I was also we were all, I was also responsible for placing students in industry. And one of the companies we placed students with was Johnson and Johnson, who I think somewhere near Livingston, somewhere in Midlothian, they they manufactured sausage skins. And it sounds old hat now. And given what I'm learning about you and your intelligence and articulacy and research, probably you regard this as something normal. But I saw a sign up there in Johnson and Johnson. Do things right first time, every time. Mm. And it was it was an important moment for me because I knew, I knew I had never been like that and I never would be. Because that's robotic. And it's Jackie. So Jackie talked to me about when he got sponsored by what the hell was the tires, Firestone tires. He he he, he the concept he found in, in his racing team was that they wanted the race car to be perfect every day. Perfect every hour, every minute of every day. Not every race, every day. And that so much um, brain power and precision was expended on telemetry and safety and race times and blah, blah, blah. And he got pissed off if the motorhome that he was staying in near the track, it was also it also had Bridgestone tires. Mm. And if the thing wasn't parked, so that the Bridgestone logo was at 12 o'clock on the white wall of the tyre. And if the tyre wasn't clean so that it looks at its absolute best, he got really enraged, he got really pissed off. He said, why why'd you let that detail escape you? If you let that detail escape you, and I'm the driver or I'm the team number uno, and I start to think about, well, will you be slack at, for a millimetre of this or an inch of that? Get that done and do it right every time. I watched that, Sean, and I, and I thought to myself, I, I can't, I don't have the personality to be like that. But what I do have is I can compensate by being in the right direction, in the right place, and with a, a, a ferocity of work ethic that will dwarf other people's perfection and me. There's no way we're bedfellows. I'll, I'll, I'll do more, work harder, I'll stay away longer, I'll, I'll party harder and see what that brings me. I'll be more voracious. I'll never say, oh, that's losing time now. That's, I mean, I've done 12 hours today. Bollocks mm. to that. But, and that, that I've always imagined, and I've explained very really, that was pivotal because I knew that the elite people believed, like, like you said, about the harder attacks than mm-hmm. they And I watched, bring up close to Jackie, and like, he got chippy about breakfast cereal. We were, one day we were, <laughs> But seriously, we were like, I like Gary play a bit chippy about what you call integral, Sean. Whole, whole meal, integral, is it? Yeah, I, I, I pan integral, yeah, like whole meal, brown bread. Whole meal, okay. So Gary Player, as you know, puts, you know, the Western world's um, predilection for colonic cancer down <laughs> to people eating processed bread. And he's like, what the fuck, you know, eating integral bread? Jackie, when we once, I don't know what we were doing, but we were at, I think we were down at Milton Keynes at the, at the plant and we were all staying in the same beautiful country town. 
and we're all having breakfast at the same, same time. And and so Jackie would get up and he would have skimmed milk, um, a, a sort of muesli mix, tons of fish uh, fruit and a little bit of honey. And anybody who was eating blooming eating Weetabix or Bran Flakes, he would go around going, what are you doing? This is how you eat breakfast, don't be an idiot. It's like, okay. <laughs> so, and that's, that's, that's not me, but I saw what I could do that would be my version of it. And when you do, I think, when you go as hard, if you're going in the right direction, if it's it's then that things drop into your lap, and, and all I can say is I didn't then drop them again. That's what's important. Hi, <laughs> see, I think um, a combination of you know of of all the best people because Jackie Stewart. Let's just take him for that example. Well, he's he's shown a lot of qualities. They would probably inhibit or restrict him in some way. But if you're able to pick the best of everybody that you're observing, it's uh, it will definitely go a lot further for you. I suppose a, a great example of that was it the Scottish Daily Mail that you walked into the office and asked if there was any work. And, and I'm going to speak, this is euphemistically speaking, so as I don't upset my gran because she's listening, but whoever you spoke to, I, he told you to go away, but he probably said that in harsher terms than that. Um, and as far as I'm aware, there was then some twist of fate and he says to you, can you go to Celtic Park? And then that sort of the rest is history to a degree. First of all, this is a bit transcendental because hello to Sean's gran. What's your gran's name? Uh, Agnes. She'll, she will be listening. She's an avid listener. Uh, Agnes. Agnes. The grandson seems to have missed the, the euphemism he used there is only in comparison to the 60 swear words that one or others have used in the previous 25 <laughs> minutes. So, Agnes, I hope you've only just been there and, and apologies. He's a better man than I am, I promise you. Um, <laughs> It was typical of me. Look, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to make every every story too long, but I want to tell you the truth. Um, I was really lucky in, in 1994 that I had a blasé attitude to what holidays were for, and, and my wife Louise said to me, "Yes, you can. Yes, I'll come with you for a month to the uh, World Cup in America." And my brother came too, and we caught the the equivalent of an interrail by by plane. You mm. buy one ticket for about three hundred dollars, and you could fly free for the rest of the month as long as you went standby. But I thought, I don't know if you, what you think of this, Sean. I, I thought the only way to properly do a pre-season for a World Cup month in America was to <clears throat> go on holiday to Marbella for two weeks in May, just to, just to <laughs> sort of get get in mix it. <laughs> That's the one. So again, I took my my conspirator in chief, my best mate Graham Runcy. We went down there, and possibly it was only a week. And we went down there to stay with our pals in Marbella who were big Barca fans and it was the final in Athens where they got pumped 4-0. We stayed down there and whatever happened, I ate some seafood that I didn't know was 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 bad. That's what the doctors have said. And I got, I did, little did I know it, but I got hep A. So by the time we're in the middle of the World Cup in the brutal heat of Orlando, it was island Mexico, I thought I was dying. Literally thought I was dying. And mm. I can put food in front of my other. During that tournament, went in the brief spell, I was drinking and eating. I lost a lot of weight, in thin, and got through it. And by the end, I was riotous and raucous again. But when I came back, and my wife was ill as well, and, and it, it was a shock. And I just thought to myself, right, life too short, even though I was still relatively young then, mm. whatever it was, 
I apologize. And I read some of the Scottish journalists' work at the World Cup and I came back and had the paper held up. And I thought, this is wrong. I was at the World Cup and this is not how you talk about it. This is wrong. Mm-hmm. So I walked into work, chucked my job on the spot, went down to Celtic Park where they were playing. Uh, they were welcoming Flamengo for pieces and friendly, but friendly with the interpreter. The next day, before the Hamden game, she phoned me up and said, listen, Fergus McCann won't pay um, $50,000 that was promised as a fee to Flamengo for the match. So they're pulling out of tonight's match. And if you can get it into the papers, get into the papers. I said, well, even Times hasn't got the press yet. So by lunchtime that day of the match, I front page splash, Fergus, $50,000 Flamengo game off, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that changes the situation. Fergus spunks up money, Flamengo play. We go on the team bus to Hamden, the Flamengo team bus to Hamden. As a, as a gesture of thanks and I'm like I like full-time journalism mm. I like this a lot right. so by by December you're right I want to name Damon Quigley a friend of mine who died very young tragically and who always had faith in me and said to me you should do hospital radio you should come and work with me in um, agency reporting of the matches and then he said in a sort of Gypsy Lero's mystic way months before the Daily Mail actually opened in Scotland again he went the industry says the, the mail's opening up Scotland, you'll get that job. So we talked about it. Anyway, I went in that probably that late December as they were as they were wiring the office and there was some executive staff there and I did went, here's mm-hmm. my CV. I'm a good candidate. I'd like to consider it. Okay, thanks very much. Went off. Spent Hogmanay in Dublin, went mental, came back, probably still still some alcohol in my brains in mm-hmm. uh, must be early January. And I literally did go in and say, Why well, haven't heard from you. What the fuck's going on? You know, whether you give me the job or not, would you not have been courtesy to either? just get back to me? And they mm. didn't like that. And they were hugging me at the door. They were like, somebody, you know, somebody get this one out. You know, I'm sorry, I guess. And <laughs> sort of, hand, hand on that, you can see me doing, it's the, the hand on the scuff of the neck kind of thing. Yeah. And it's about to be the boot up the arse. And, and the fax machine goes, could you do some sort of detailed on-screen thing for people who don't know a fax machine is so I don't have to explain it. Just some sort of running scrolling print our fax machine was and in the mm. office it just goes ping and somebody pulls the fax off the off the and, and goes wait wait and Celtic were announcing a strike and it turned out to be Van Hoydon mm. and, and they went we haven't got Brian Scott's photography because Brian Cooney you sent him up there and we haven't got a reporter and they, and they literally go to me can you go to this can you go to Parkhead reporting this signing and not screw it up I'm like I can, because I, I didn't only having ever been there as a fan. I didn't quite know. I've never driven in my life, never at least. Mm. Didn't quite know how to get there, and I thought, do I pay for this? So I beat off in a taxi to to Parkhead, get there, and there's two gangs in in the in the I don't know if it was the Billy McNeil suite, whatever suite it was. Um, there's a growling, knuckle dragging, troglodyte bunch at one side. And that was the Scottish press who who growl at me, don't acknowledge me. They've seen me. Mm. In part-time reporting, nothing. Not not even. I mean, they wouldn't have given me the spit off their tongue. And then the Dutchies in their in their clogs and smoking their spliffs are over on the other side. <laughs> um, eat, eat damn sandwiches all right. So I look over to them. And I'm like, all right, lads. And they're like, ah, hello. And they're like, are you Scottish? Like, yeah. Can you show us a, a good place to to hit rent a kilt for Pierre so that he can be in our pictures wearing a kilt? I'm like, ah, because I can I got married a couple of years ago, I'll take you to that place. Well, where is he? Why is this is late? And I'm like, ah, he was out playing cards and drinking with his Nat Breda teammate last night. He overslept, 
because of it. Mr. Light and the agents don't set it that there's light, that there's fog at Skipple Airport, and, mm. and that's the reason he's not here. I said, do, um, do any of them uh, know that? And they're like, no. And I said, are you going <laughs> to tell them? They're like, no. Um, <laughs> so nobody asks throughout the whole press conference. Yeah. I see press conference. And Hoy Donk's an interesting footballer because without the benefit of the internet, you already know that he, he's he's different shaped, he's promising. It's, yeah. you know, certainly aren't my club, but it's a continuation of this idea that they were actively getting better. Um, mm. and, and, and so I go back to, and they're like, okay, what happened? And I tell them, well, the best quote is this, but the best story is this. And they're like, does anybody else know that? I'm like, no. And they said, is this an exclusive? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> back page lead. Um, back page lead. And I think the same day, the Andy Cole, Alan Shearer swap takes place. So I think I got second back page rather than that because of Cole Shearer. But um, the next day they said, right, we haven't got a rugby reporter. Can give you a contract, give you a try, you're in. So, so how many times do I have to tell you these stories, you know, before the truth comes out? And when I say things fall into my lap, it, yeah. it has consistently happened to me again and again and again. I feel like there's a duality of fate or destiny, if you want to call it, and, and, and as you see, heading in a general direction, and it's combined with your action and obviously putting yourself in that position in that place. Do you were you there till around about two thousand and two? Is that correct, or is that wrong? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, no, it was it was it was mental. Um, sports editor there, and I, um, something were 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 good and bad for each other in equal measures. Um, he was a man who utterly, utterly believed in send your journalists to places. He's a man who believed in stories, mm. personalities. And very quickly, his his tremendous success at the Daily Mail in Scotland got him the sports editorship um, in London. And within a few days, um, he got rid of the sports chief editor in London and appointed me. Oh, I've, been right, a full-time, right. I've been a full-time journalist for maybe a year and I was chief football writer in London and that that was that was a story in itself that was brutal and um, it led to things that that very much went my way like for example the reason he was able to elevate me that quickly one of the reasons was me saying to him I think there's a story in this Bosman guy he said who I said this is mm-hmm. what's happened to him it's not a dry story about legalities it's a, it's a human story right you're on the next plane off I went Bosman, I phoned him from the airport. He says, no, you can't come. I said, please. I've travelled all this way. I believe in your story. All in French. Pigeon French. My uh-huh. my pigeons speak really good French. But <laughs> if you ask, ask Big Duncan Ferguson or John Lambie, that's the yeah, reason I... that they were so good with the old dudes. Just a constant French man. A couple of songs about a slash of style. So I, I go and I talk my way into his, his house in, in, in Liège. And the phone rings during the interview, and it's the it's Agence France Press saying the verdicts come in. You've won your case, and he tells them, oh, I'm, not, "I'm not speaking to any of the world's journalists until I finish speaking to this guy here. I've got the first person exclusive of being in his house when the verdict comes in. I bugger off right to it. It gets the back page lead and inside two pages spread um, in the National Daily Mail. And when Brian Cooney eventually gets the job, he says, "You know, I want to bring that fella down in." Mm. And Paul Dacre says yes. The, for anyone who's unaware, so this is about Jean-Marc Bosman, who was the sort of landmark case in 
I suppose the restructuring restructuring of the laws of the game because what would happen is if players' contracts ran out, they were still technically contracted to that club and it, it created a whole a whole mess. I think it was banned for playing, but he's then obviously changed the face of the game. So when people talk about a Bosman ruling, they often don't realise that this is who they're actually referring to. The uh, did you was it like a falling out? It was something happened in two thousand and two and you received was it a, a severance package of some sort? And this is the point that your wife Louise then suggests that you you go and pursue life in Spain. This is where I believe in GCHQ and Big Brother and how. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't now need to know that you bugged my life. But where did you put the bugs in the cameras? This is. Can I, can I tell you that because you go and remove them, and it's quite it's entertaining late, watching you. I believe you might have time travel, but I don't. I can't go back in time and remove them. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what you want me to say Sean because Agnes is listening and this is a part of my life where you know she can handle it she can handle it okay well very 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 brief very quickly after I'm chief football writer and and there's a there's a huge amount of flack and difficulties to handle because the man that was removed and given another job was hurt very badly people felt for him my opinion is that I did a far better job than him, but nonetheless, there were many people stung that this guy, Neil Harmon, was moved. And Neil Harmon um, belonged to a group of people who called themselves the fucking bits that they are, and mm. the Morris Dancers. And in oh, that group was Harry Harris, Colin Gibson, um, Steve Curry, and Neil Harmon. What they did, Sean, to, to, to their great glee, this is not a revelation, they shared stories. They protected each other. So if one mm. of them got stolen, he'd give it to the others. And and to me, that's always been infantile. I, I was much more cutthroat about I want to get exclusive news, exclusive news stories then. Mm-hmm. Now I want to tell stories brilliantly. I want to I, I want to be able to understand football better. I want to I, I feel I'm in, you know, the, the cradle of what's been the greatest football of my life here. So it's different. But back then, you know, you you lived or died by doing the best interviews, best features, and getting the, the best, most clear-cut exclusive stories. So that was a battle between many people. But these guys supported each other and called themselves the Morris Dancers and also did favours for people in football. So they would they would write stuff that was either slanted or you know overly favourable. It didn't really matter about the news agenda. And that leads to the situation we've got now where, it, where the media become not only supine, but, but the, the actual task that we charged ourselves with becomes less relevant. So that made me angry. So the long and short is not my fault, but Neil Harmon is removed mm. as um, football correspondent. I get his place. Eventually the sports editor, I mean, not eventually, <laughs> I get the job. And within two years, the sports editor asked me to become deputy sports editor. So really, you know, honestly, from becoming a full-time sports journalist in full-time in about 19 Five or ninety-six, under five years later, I'm the deputy sports editor of Daily Mail in London. The, the sports editor gets ill, very ill, um, gets a gets a uh, you know a package to to leave to retire early because of ill health, and the the process begins to appoint a sports editor. I'm not going to get it because you know my experience of drawing pages is zero. I've mm. been deputy sports editor for a couple of months. It's a gigantic high profile. They say I'm in the mix. They tell me that I'll, I'll get pay rise and I'm in the mix. And then eventually Paul Dacre calls me into his office and says, 
you know, you've had six, so I have six months when I'm running this sports department on my own. I was nerve wracking and draining. I had some big successes and I had one big mistake that, two big mistakes, one of which I'll tell you about, that I, I got called in by Dacre for a brutal bollocking one morning when I was on my day off because I hadn't put a picture of David Beckham in the package when he thought I should have done. I also got one uh, real rollicking, which makes me laugh because I was a chicken walker. And he used to stay in and, and monitor the, 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 the picture desk. So I think, I don't know who was fighting. I think Herbie Hyde is the fighter. And I think whoever Herbie Hyde is fighting loses. And the Daily Mirror has sponsored Herbie Hyde because they know he's going to get beat. Let's say it was Tyson or Bruno, I can't remember. And on the bottom of his white-soled shoes in the ring, it says the Daily Miller. So the best shot of, of this boxer, I think it was Herbie Hyde, um, the best shot of is him flat out in the ring, but it's got the Daily Mirror prominently. And I'm like, I thought I'm putting that in our paper. So I ordered, I ordered them to, to pixelate it out. <laughs> Print the picture. And the Daily Mirror go fucking mental. And they phone <laughs> Paul Dacre, who's the editor of the paper, and I get hauled in. And he's like, well, on the one hand, of course, I, I, uh, we really should really, 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 But uh, well done, well done, well done. <laughs> so it was one of those uh, slap round the year with one hand and a pan about the other. Yeah. So, and I also had a couple of nice ones that, but six months have gone by, and Paul Dacre calls me and says, look, we've had, we've had numerous candidates, and I've appointed the one that I think you'll get on with best. And I've told him that it's obligatory that you stay. And his, his name was Colin Gibson. Um, he's a disgusting person, um, in my view, disgusting. And, um, you know, he would subsequently go on and and, and punt Svengorn Eriksson to the news of the world to protect the FA and, and, mm. and, and lose his job at the FA. And, and, and he and I never get on. And um, eventually I get called in by the managing editor. He says, uh, Colin Gibson's the sports editor, I'm his deputy. And he, he tells me that I have to go to the managing editor's uh, office. He's such a coward he was. He said, oh, I think uh, the managing editor, Laurie, here has got something to tell you about the pagination today and how many pages we'll get for sport. Did you go and see him? And of course, it's a setup. He's mm. gone to daycare, the editor saying, um, either you sat me or you sat him. I want him out and it's me or him. What so the manager bag. tells me this, uh, coward to shape bag, and um, uh, the managing editor said, do you, want, do you want to go and see Paul? This is a fate I come to back. I said, yeah, I do. And Dick comes in and says, look, um, you're a great writer. You're welcome back in any of my papers at any time. Um, the editor, the sports editor come and said, it's him or you. He's more experienced. He's a recent appointment. Um, I have to back him. He said, you're a better writer than I ever was. You come back to any of my papers any time you want. But for the moment you're out and it's a payoff. So I, I'd seen it coming, Sean, and, and life is brutal. And uh, there's no boo-hoo for me on, on my part. But it, again, if you extrapolate from that to, to Emily Maitlis being taken off Newsnight uh, immediately before we go on air, if you extrapolate to, to um, people of small ability, either, now generically I'm talking, either bullying their way at the top, swindling their mm. way at the top, or doing jobs that they're not capable of. That's always seemed to me to be something for people like you and I to rail against. Mm, and and sometimes you win and sometimes you don't win. I don't find it an edifying part of our society. 
But the, I suppose that that's a great example of, you know, in life you don't always choose the hand you're dealt, but you can choose how you react. And you then decided to hot-foot it to Barcelona. Uh, I've got so many questions because as somebody who did the same as you just a wee bit later uh, and has gone into a new life. Now, first of all, in terms of once again, that luck pops up. So at that point, Let's look at it. Real Madrid, the Galacticos, they're a year away for signing David Beckham. They've got Zidane, Figo, Raul, they've got Ronaldo, they've got all the stars. So Barcelona, in terms of, as a team, they're one of the most fashionable. In fact, I remember, I think looking back at that point, Joan Laporta in 2003 was campaigning to become president and he was using Beckham as a bargaining tool and saying, I will sign David Beckham if you elect me. And I remember thinking... Don't go to Barcelona, like go to Madrid. That's fucking like Barcelona are just, they're very uncool. They were, I don't know, antiquated as a force in that sense. That might sound absurd to any young listener listening. Obviously, Barcelona being the, for me anyway, the team of the last 25 years. I I kind of just contradicted myself a wee bit there because I'm obviously talking about how they weren't at that point. What was it about Barcelona? Why why do you choose there? Is it the lifestyle? Is it... There was a cocktail of elements, Sean, in that, first of all, you know, I've been in London for a few years. I adore London. I can't tell you why it's in my blood, but, like, I feel a reverence about the Thames River. I'm looking at a big picture of it now on my wall. I feel a reverence to the Thames River that is similar to my reverence to Neil Cooper or Leo Messi or Cary Grant or... Purple marks to people, things that just have a, they're closing your soul somehow or other. Yeah. So I adored London. I mean, literally adored it. Yet it's a brutal city to live in and working in the way that I was doing it. It, it, it winds you up and it wears you down. Mm-hmm. So uh, one, it felt like Madrid was without being identical, was more of the same. And Barcelona is like a village in London. Aye. We thought, okay, let's let's. We both thought, let's try for a slightly different lifestyle and see what that does. But secondly, and and this is an absolute fact, I have to be near water. Born, you know, near sea, D and the dawn, in in Glasgow, you know, at Hogmanay, from part of it, you could hear the, the foghorns of the ships sounding. Mm-hmm. We were that near to the to the water there. And the Clyde's an impressive river in London. I live within four or five minutes walk of the Thames um, down in the Lily Estate between Hammersmith and Fulham uh, right, right near Craven Cottage and I had to have water, it doesn't have to be the sea, it's not the beach but you know, Madrid's got no sea and it's got no river to speak of mm-hmm. and I was like I have to be near water and the final element, simple as this was, you know Steve Archibald with whom now I'm, I'm really good friends it was a dandy, and it's the title in 1980, first time since 55. Steve had gone to Barcelona, and I literally went, well, Barcelona's good enough for Steve. <laughs> it's that thing I said to you about Aberdeen going and winning at Parkhead, and I got and taking the old firm up to the and beating them, and beating Bayern Munich, beating um, Hamburg, and beating Real Madrid. I kind of went, well, <laughs> it wasn't like if Steve can do it, I can do it, but it's like, fancy a bit, I fancy a wee challenge in that too, and Following Steve's footsteps, mm. all that man. It's ludicrous. It's infantile. If you put me down in front of a, a, um, a bank manager or an actuary or a probably a psychologist, they'd all be throwing custard pies at me, saying, 
you're complete half. Like, what, what, how can you make decisions like that? But I did, and here we are. <laughs> what was uh, what was the city like at that point? Obviously, it's somewhere that rapidly evolves and changes. Um, while pretty much staying the same. I mean, when you arrived, did you just think, did you feel like, I've arrived, I'm home? No, God, no. No? No. That's how I felt when I arrived. I just felt as if I'd returned to like a spiritual home. Okay. Then I, okay. Then now you, I know I've fucking turned on so much on, but I try try not to tell everything once, but that's what I felt in 82 when we took the train from Stonehaven to, um, from Aberdeen to um, London and then the train down the coast and the ferry and then a train to Paris a 24 hour train to Madrid and then a 12 hour a 12 hour train from Madrid to Malaga overnight to, in 1982 amidst that journey like you said there and I'm going to shut up and ask you to say it again that when I when we crossed the old gauges of railways weren't the same between France and Spain in 82 so you mm-hmm. had to get off and wait at Irun and Ondai. Ondai, I think, is the French side, and Irun is the Spanish side. So you had to get off and wait. So we got off and waited while they shunted the train about. You got back on and you started off again. And famously, there was a, you know, a stramash, a racist Englishman with a bottle, smashed a Spaniard. I jumped in, there was a fight. The cops come in armed and arrest both me and the, and the, the horrible Nazi guy. But leaning out the window before that incident happens, from the Spanish border onwards, and smelling, because my heart's just in a handstand now, smelling mm. the country and looking at it. It wasn't, I like this. And I think that's what you're saying. It wasn't, this is nice, or this is sunny, or this isn't Scotland. I was like, this is home. I'm home. Mm. I was in 1982. One of the biggest experiences of my life. I was like, I I, I, I didn't go so far as to say my ancestors come from here, but I was like, yeah, this is me. I've been here before. And it was just a spooky experience. And it's what you said you, you experienced, mm. no? I absolutely. I just felt as if I was home. Like when you were speaking about London as well, I feel the same. So I've got a theory and this people will probably think I'm a bit mental, but sometimes I wonder, have I really been here like on this earth before? And I get it with, so with London, I just get this feeling that I just can't explain and I see old buildings and I don't know, it just, how can something strike a chord to me that I've never actually seen before? I get it in New York, I get it in London and I get it in Rome. Uh, and I certainly get it in Barcelona as well, and being around about Catalonia, and it's it's a strange, strange feeling. But but I completely love it. But I've got this weird itch where, wherever I am. I'm like, right, okay, this is great. But there's something further over the, hori- the horizon. That's identical. Um, identical. I, I'll be so I'm in Glasgow right now, and I'm absolutely longing, hearts aching for Barcelona. So when I get back to Barcelona in a few weeks, give it two days, and I'll be like singing songs about Glasgow and greeting and all that any time I hear Deacon Blue come on and like, like walking out dressed like my fucking soul tire painted my face but then I'll get back and I'll land in Presswick and I'll be like I tell you what I sure do miss El Pratt you know so it's like I, you carry win but I suppose I'm I'm very fortunate to, to have See, things that things are, are remarkable that degree of self-knowledge and the horrendous degree to which we're similar and like is that I kind of recognise every, every single word and when, when I came to Barcelona, Sean, I didn't, because that happened to me in 82, all I felt was, she's this, this is some adventure now because I had no Spanish language, no job, no contacts, no, okay, a, a couple of friends, one Argentinian, one Spanish. And apart from that, it was just me, Louise, and our, our eldest daughter, our younger daughter, and she was born here, she's Catalan. And and therefore, 
like say, I, I remember we didn't even take what you call these uh, flipping shore ports, what are they, when, when they remove off firms. We didn't use it. We, we mm. packed all our, our worldly belongings onto the excess baggage in BA and arrived like, I don't know, migrants in, in less ports. I moved mm. into a place in Carrera Jusa and you could, you could, from the top of the street, you could pretty much see the camp now. And I'd be honest and tell you that the the first few months were confusing, intoxicating, and a little bit worrying in equal Mm -hmm. mix. And and the the best thing that happened to me was that, again, this fluke, no, I I won't go into it at length, but in 1999, I can't now, I had an extraordinary couple of days. We pushed the envelope a little bit. I was reporting, I reported well enormously testing and strange things happened and the guy who was head of Sky Sports was in the airport the day after the Manchester United game picked up the Daily Mail expecting to see that because of the late nature of the goals that the paper had been printed and that the the first the edition match report would be by a minute win 1-0 and blah 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 and disappointment mm. as used to nobody will remember that now or right. nobody who's, who's younger than me would but first editions used to go with their own score because it had to print at a certain time to be distributed around the country geographically. And he said he went to the airport, couldn't believe that the first edition not only had things right, but given that, it, you know, I rewrote several hundred words in about four or five minutes, mm-hmm. he, he took me aside and went, listen, Matt, because he'd been ex-print at Wakeling who created Spectreport. And he said, I was proud. And he said, I was really proud of British journalism in that day. And I went, okay, that's nice. And in the August after that, Champions League finally took us out, the, the chief operators. We went to a nice restaurant. We all made our predictions for the season. And eventually, when I was leaving years later, he saw me at a dinner and said, is this true? Are you, are you leaving for school? I said, aye. He said, oh, well, stay in touch. I was like, aye, right. Okay, very. I said, thanks very much. But in my head, I went, mm-hmm. uh, blah, blah. And and by that August, I never knew it was him behind it. He told somebody at Revista de la Liga, phone Graham and get him on. I mean, Sean, I know you've talked about duality and I know that we're talking about if, if you're the, if the world's best fielder at cricket and you're in the World Cup final and the ball gets knocked in the air and it's coming straight at you, mm. you've still not got to drop it. So, okay, in the, in the majority of times when the world has literally leaned over and sprinkled magic dust in my path, I haven't tripped up and, you know, screwed the opportunity, but I I know that there's been a greater force working to to stream my path with rose petals because mm-hmm. it's just a fact. It's certainly a great story. The uh, there is a there's also a presence. Or a, a, what do you call it? A, a network? Because I don't know how parlay you all are, right? But there's a sort of English Spanish speaking football journalist in or around Barcelona. So by that I'd be referring to like Samuel Marsden. Have to give the big man a shout. Guillaume Balague, Andy Mitten. The, who was the editor of United We Stand, contributor to other publications, Sid Lowe as well. Have you? Do you think you all, to a degree, congregate to each other? Because I know a few of you are quite friendly, obviously covering the same patch and for the same geographical area. Well, I want to name a couple of others. I have to name Pete Jensen, who's just an extraordinary guy and a brilliant writer, but you know, one of the best, funniest guys I've ever met. Simon Hanley. 
um, who's Newcastle-born and is head of La Liga Television. Um, Duncan McMath, who was at Real Madrid Television and I moved to Barcelona, formed Zoom and took, you know, took the, the book out of a bus when I made it fall out of mm-hmm. it. So uh, all I'll tell you is that it wasn't anything like that when I moved over at first. Um, I can't remember if Andy Mitten was already there or not, but let's say we moved to Barcelona at or around the same time. And it took me, I heard of some guy who um, was over there gradually over the months, but it took me at least a year to meet him. Mm. Um, Said that I think moved to to Madrid at or around the same time. I can't remember if it was before or after. But the people you've um, mentioned and, and there are more. Um, it's it's become a flow, um, and and it, it it distinctly wasn't the case when when I was trying to get Barcelona or Real Madrid players to in, to to give me an interview in the first place. And I was going to training when when training was taking place at the camp now in that little car park that's now next to the stadium yeah. uh, between the stadium and, and Maternidad. That was the training ground. And you could go, you could get a, a pass to, to attend training every day and then crowd the players. There was no special mix zone. The players had to fight their way out of the stadium to their cars <laughs> through a crowd of journalists. It's unbelievable. And there were no, it's you know, generally, Spanish. in those days, there was no British journalists around in, in, on that day in the camp. Now, Andy was doing his thing. I don't know what he was doing, um, but it took him, he, he, he had a pass which was determinedly chosen by him, which was different. And he was doing much less daily journalism then mm. and now, maybe out of pure devotion to United We Stand, which is an extraordinary achievement that he's mm. had. Absolutely. To, to start it when he was about 14 and it'd still be going now and, and to be so a place of worship for so many United fans. So did we gravitate to each other originally? No. No, definitely didn't. And part of that was to do with there were more British journalists. There, there's some who've come and gone who were living in Madrid, because at that stage, as you pointed out, Barcelona were in the middle of six years without a single trophy. And Madrid was Madrid and Real Madrid, they were the places to, to, to be in inverted commas. I was quite happy where I was because it had not been planned, but, but something seemed to be developing and changing. And again, that's pure flu. But I had this sensation of other people have got Madrid as a patch and sorted out. Therefore, I'll plow my furrow here. I'll work out whether there's, you know, whether there's the vegetables and peas and strawberries and raspberries to be harvested every eight months here or not, but I'm not budging. I'm, I'm, I'm interested by what I'm watching, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I, I got sent to to Madrid quite a lot. Sent to Valencia and Seville and Deportivo La Coruña quite a lot, which was fantastic. But as far as I didn't have any sense that Rijkaard was going to win the European Cup or that Pep's around the corner. None of mm. that. But what, what you mentioned, Laporta and his Trixie campaign, and whatever industry you're in, Sean, I think that if you're a bystander to a gigantic wave of newness and freshness, the minimum that it is is intoxicating and it's interesting and it stimulates your creativity and your maybe your descriptive powers and also your investigative powers. So I, I was happy being on the outside of what was going on galactical-wise, not out of stubbornness, because I thought that maybe I'd stumbled on something interesting. And people, 
also people wanted me to chronicle it. That is true. There was mm-hmm. there, there began to be a market. So you've obviously then that wave has come. You've come into the city, fresh eyes, just discovering it. Eventually, you've written the, like a multitude of books. And one, as you mentioned there, which has been turned into a documentary film. So that came out in November 2018, as you say, directed by Duncan McMath. And it's focusing on FC Barcelona's success, basically, within that period. So that was taken for your book, uh, Barca, the making of the greatest team in the world. Did you then, so was that, the way, what I'm curious to know is, did they take the book in the way you've written it and basically just put that onto screen? Or did you have to develop that in order for them to, to turn it into a, a documentary how did that take place yeah sean it was a real learning process for me because um i've never written a book before barca and and the people you know or know of you anyway and uh, neil white and martin greg they said to me write the book and i had to bend my arm up my back to, to do so and i did it i was really shocked at what people mm. thought of it i was really shocked at its at its surprise and, and it's that people sorry that people were receptive to it and it won a couple of awards and therefore after a couple of years, you just let that alone. I got on with writing the Spain book. And I found it much more fun to write. And, and I mentioned this because I'd left the book in advance. So and it was kind of, I've done that. It's gone quite well. I can't believe it. I can I can just leave that in the bookshelf now and put it to bed. And I wanted to go back there. And Duncan McMath was just somebody who, you know, we were, we were friendly. Uh, we liked each other's company. Um, he'd moved from Madrid to Barcelona got married here, started to work at La Liga Television or Goal Television. And increasingly we saw each other socially and it was we clearly get on. And mm-hmm. uh, it's honeymoon, Sean. Again, it's another WTF moment. Agnes, I look, look what I did there. <laughs> um, it's, he, he texts me from his honeymoon. And he's like, I've just read your book. He said, I've spent night after night and, and that sentence shouldn't end with, reading your book <laughs> but it, it 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 did and what's more his wife karen was as enthusiastic about it and he said we have to make this into a film typically i mean i was like <laughs> and he persuaded me and therefore the direct answer to your question is we took the book as a spine of the film and we we, we thought we'll make it chapters we'll make sure that it's telling the same message but it the, the book will be nothing more than a trampoline into the film. So when the book's originally written, or be, sorry, when the book's originally been constructed, Wembley 2011 hasn't happened. Mm. We kind of bolt that on just before we publish. Um, and and so we steal that. So you have, the film like the book has to start with Wembley 2011. But then we go back and, and we, explain, we explain using film you know, if you put all the words and pages into film, the film would last six hours. So the editing process of how to make the narrative tell you similar things much more quickly needed constructing. So we, mm. we decided there'll be these many chapters. We, when we began to negotiate with Universal, a woman who's at the top of Universal uh, Europe and used to be in LA called Helen Parker, who's a mad West Ham fan, she made one Universal once we began to make them our partners said there's one thing we want that that narrative order should be different we changed it because it was still very early mm. apart from that they didn't touch it and we we felt there was lots of arguments about 
you know, should Mourinho be painted as a villain more or less? Where should Mourinho come in? Some people around the film didn't see the value of the Eric Abidal story, which to me, as a, as a storyteller, yeah. it, it, but this is the process of creativity. You argue, you, you revaluate, and, and eventually we got there. And the ultimate thing I would say when you talk about the, the, the reconversion of a book into a film, some of what the film says was driven about by the quality of the interviews because mm. we spent a lot of our own money. We flew to Turin, to Qatar, to Turkey, to London, to Marbella, to I don't know where all in order to, to, to film it. And one of the things that really seduced us, Sean, was that we, we were sure we were telling a good story. We were sure we were telling it to the best of our ability. But to see the players relax into telling their own story, not just, ah, fuck, here we go again. Here's mm. somebody else asking me to tell the same old story, which I've got sympathy for them. They, they get asked the same thing 200 times. But we watched each of them lose themselves during the interview in being back in the moment. Mm. And at that stage, that has to influence how you edit something that you might have given a different position to or a different elevation to in terms of importance. You have a little look and say, look, these, that, those images, those words, or the juxtaposition of his interview and his interview, they're so important that you make tiny little changes. And in the end, we didn't screw it up. And um, people enjoyed it, which has given all of us deep mm-hmm. satisfaction because we felt, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll close this by saying, we felt our responsibility, Sean, of telling what we thought was a gigantically good and important story, and we didn't want to screw it up. No, brilliantly done, and uh, yeah, very well received. So for anybody wanting to watch that, take the ball past the ball, you'll get that on any or most streaming platforms. Uh, I could just ask you questions for hours and hours, but I will start to curtail it a wee bit, because you've obviously got a life to live as well. Uh, but I suppose we do have to mention... Uh, Neil and and uh, Martin at Backpage um, and obviously the big interview podcast so for anybody who's unaware I, I find it astounding when anybody's unaware of the big interview because for me it is the foremost most prominent football podcast because you look at some of the names it's just astounding uh, that, that you've spoken to if, so, if I say to somebody do you listen to the big interview with Graham Hunter and they say no my reaction is as if they've just told me they don't breathe oxygen or they don't drink water. I just think, I'm like, well, how the fuck can you not know that? that like, that's like, like, that's like telling me you've never seen Celtic playing Rangers or you've never watched an El, like, you've never watched an El Clasico. I'm like, fuck off. You don't know anything about football. You're a rugby man. You're a rugby man. Like, you're I think a cricket, when, we yeah. the, when we do the book at the beginning of you, I need to pinch some of these quotes and put them on the back if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's as good advertising copy as I've ever heard, Sean. <laughs> the, uh, I, I don't want to keep speaking, but I also kind of want to get this across to the person listening. Is it the way I came across it was, so, and I said, to, said this to you off air, so a pal of mine who I have to give a mention, Dean Brown, big Luton Town fan, and I've also converted him to a Celtic man. He comes to Michael Collins with me sometimes to to watch games at Sagrada Familia. And he had said um, that he'd seen you in the gym. And I thought, all right, that's funny. I didn't know he lived here, but that makes sense. And then I explained I was walking past, uh, for anybody who knows Barcelona, the Santa Catarina Market restaurant, and you're in a, a Basque restaurant doing a, a, a link or a preview to the Copa del Rey final of 2015 between 
Barca and Athletic Bilbao. If anybody's wondering, Barca won 3-1. Messi scored a double. The place was absolutely swarming with Bilbao fans. Uh, I and then a couple of months later, I'm on the beach and a, a pal of mine says, have you listened to the big interview? And I'm saying, no, what's that? So the, I think it was four at that point. It was, if I remember correctly, Gordon Strachan, Jamie Carragher, Gary Neville and Kevin Bridges, who, funnily enough, is, his two have been probably two of my favourites because the guy's obviously just fucking hilarious. Um, and it's grown into something massive. I'll let you explain how it originated and you know how it's gone on, but it's obviously been... That's five years now, and it shows no signs of slowing down. First of all, hello, Dino. I think that needs to be done properly, um, given the prominence that Agnes has had in this. And <laughs> let me tell you, Sean, and, and, and to your listener, the reps that Dino does, man, down at the gym, I'm telling you, boy. <laughs> He's solid, isn't he? Oh, man, ah, but he does his work, here, doesn't he? Oh, <laughs> listen to Mighty Hatters. Um, Neil... White and Martin Gregg are dirty liars. Dirty, dirty liars. <laughs> because they come to me in my susceptible mode, them having published two books of mine and persuaded me to do both of them, knowing that that makes me just a little bit more vulnerable to their bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm referring to the fact that they tell me because they think they know me and they very they hit the crossbar a bit. Kudos to them. They say to me, we've been given... Uh, an arts pencil grant. We've been given money because the arts, the, the, the Scottish Arts Council wants to promote more Scottish work and blah, blah, blah. So we've got some money, so we're going to launch a podcast with you. I'm like, oh, congratulations, that's fantastic. Now they've done this because they know I'm lost in admiration because they, these are these. The listeners, maybe if they don't know Mark Gregg and Neil White and Batman's Press, these two then still, you know, young in my book, really young guys, in, in, the, in, the, in the height of the biggest uh, recession and, and financial hailstorm that they'd ever encountered. And, and may, oh, I'm older, so maybe I think the OPEC crisis might have been worse in the early 70s. But they, they, they sort of give up their full-time jobs at, at which both of them were excellent. Mm. They form a company. They, you know, they put their mortgages at risk. They've, they've both got partners. Um, one of them had kids, and and they form this out of pure love and devotion to the fact that football stories should be told better in books than people were doing. They go like, yeah, we'll step out into the wind and we'll walk straight into the wind. So mm. I cannot describe to you my utter admiration for bravery and talent and foolhardiness and all mixed into one sort of Molotov mm. cocktail. And therefore, they knew that if they said to me, let's start this risky podcast that, Graham, you don't understand, which is true. I have no idea what podcast was. <laughs> um, they knew, I'd have said, well, there's no way, I, you know, it's a financial risk for you. And all that. So that's why they made up this story, because it's such, on the night when we're about to fly up to San Sebastian to interview David Moyes when he's Real Sociedad manager, for some reason, but we're out having a couple of beers before an early morning flight, they go, um, maybe now we should tell you that we don't have any money and that there wasn't a grant and that we lied and, <laughs> and they turned us down. Oh, I was amazing because I, I worry for them and I want them to get their, their just rewards and recognition for being... Mm-hmm. I mean, two exceptional people beyond yeah. their talents. 
so that when they say to me, let's podcast is something that people can listen to, which is about as simple as I need it, and it's about all I understood. Mm. And they said, um, let's try and reproduce an audio form what it used to be like in the, they didn't say the 70s, but it's what I equate to. I could do up in our household every Sunday. We would, <laughs> I wasn't behind the first. My parents would get the Sunday Post. Oh dear. But they would also buy the Observer and the Sunday Times. So this mountain of newsprint would come to our front door every Sunday. And the Observer and the Sunday Times, to me, they're writing, they're, they're writing by, say, Clive James, Captain Whitehorn, Sue Arnold, McIlvany, eventually even by, who do I like? I like Prof Scott. You know, it just went on and on and on. And that feeling on a Sunday when I wasn't, you know, by then I wasn't working and holding down a mortgage, to, to pick up a broadsheet paper and see an interview with somebody that I really respected stretched over two gigantic pages and it was brilliantly written. And it took the, the printed form of the old Michael Parkinson interviews in the, in the early mm-hmm. 70s when you would see Betty Bacall or Muhammad Ali or or get Gary Cooper or Groucho yeah. Marx, whoever it might be sitting in and telling life as it really was. They said, let's try and reproduce that. And, you know, at that point, it's Jerry Maguire, isn't it? You had me at hip. You know, I was, I, I was sold. And the very first one, uh, we chose Gary Neville because we thought he was tremendously articulate, right? Yeah. And I was working in Sky at the time, and I was I met him in the office. I said, "Listen, will you do it uh, on this day?" Yeah, fine. We got in on the day, and I'm like, "Gary, are you, are you ready?" Because he was on Monday night football prep during the day, and they worked hard. This, this is back a while ago, mm. and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll just come in. It'll just be a five minute thing." Well, I was like, "No, Gary, no, it won't. No, I told you this is coming out." Oh, so we nicked off in a studio in Sky. And I remember his face because he thought it'd just be usual old pish, but whatever pish I come out with, it's not the usual old pish. So <laughs> Richie Benno, the cricket commentator, had just died. And I knew that there was a big history of cricket in the Neville family. So I said, Gary, look, you know, you're experimenting this art and it's going well for you, but can we just stop a minute and appreciate Richard, Richie Benno? And off he went. So we yeah. had about 15 minutes of Richie Benno. And then we started talking about how he commentated what adjectives he used and I thought the interview was was good and at that stage there weren't um, long form football interviews and we stormed the iTunes charts and uh, um, Gary Nels because I didn't see him as regular as Andy Mitten but Gary said to Andy Mitten well flipping heck that podcast is unbelievable everybody's telling me about it everybody's asking me about it blah, blah, blah. Now, and then Gary immediately typically of him and I mean that with a salute went out and did his own which is mm. exactly what you should do and, and full marks to you but it rolled and it rolled after that, and and people seemed to enjoy it. And there was a Kickstarter campaign. I can't like you had to mention Dino. I have to mention the people, the socios, the people who got behind us. One in Kickstarter, you know, there was a crowdfunding thing, and without the love and generosity of people, we wouldn't still exist. Mm-hmm. And the socios who've been members for years are are fantastic. And what I get the greatest enjoyment out of. Um, Sean would be, and maybe this equates to, you know, that clearly I understand now listening to you why you've made a success of what you do. I, it's this has been a revelation to me, and and I also regret not having 
known about you in Barcelona or about the podcast before, and I'll make amends on both counts. But there, there will be moments inside an interview where I know that the guest and I are in a different place. Mm-hmm. There, it's happened a lot. The one time was, I didn't view Michael Carrick before. He should have known what he's getting. He said he has to do it again because his brother Graham was a, a fan and Graham said, you should do this. So we sat down with Michael Carrick and the first 15 minutes, I was asking him about time at West Ham and Paulo de Canyon. The answers were fine, but he was boxing clever. I said, yeah. oh no, this is not the Michael Carrick I know. And Darren Fletcher had given me a, a little clue about this sort of war game that they all played in the Manchester <laughs> yeah. squad and Haywire and Havoc and nicknames. And I just thought, right, bollocks, I'm not going to tell Michael we've got to change gear. I'm going to say, Michael, who, who is Haywire and who is Havoc? And he burst into laughter. <laughs> we have a brilliant period about that online game. And, and he makes really good points about Manchester United players being accepted into the group, not because of training ground practice or because they take the jokes about their, their clothes being cut off, but because once they're playing like that, it gives people, a, even the more timid people, a way into squad unity because they're yeah. all playing these games and shouting in hotel rooms on, on tour or on planes or whatever. And then I know he's he's ready and I asked Mark Moscow. And... Watching somebody who was a main actor in an event of that size, of whatever it might be, mm-hmm. losing themselves and, and being back in the moment, that sense chills down my spine. And I remember his, his, his publicity agent, Joe Tung, got in touch with me afterwards. I hadn't set it up here and she said, he, he never talks like that. He never talks like that. And it's happened a couple of times. And the only other thing that equals that, and you get this, I know, because we've talked about it, when 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 a listener says this this series has this effect on me, I I'm happier in my gym. I'm happier in my dog. But Martin Thompson was on the mm-hmm. series. I, I didn't know Martin. Martin just got in touch with me over Twitter and said, "Listen, I'm, I've been walking my dogs up in the hills of Hollywood or LA or West Hollywood or whatever it is. They listen to your podcast and and, and blah 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 blah." And I said, wow! I, and I had to go and look at who he was. Then he appeared in Line of Duty. I didn't even know he was Scottish to begin mm. with. and but, but then you get people who say, my depression has been the most serious threat to my life and I use the podcast to do this or that. And sometimes when we do gigs, people come up and talk to me about these feelings and the way in which having good voices in your head rather than bad voices mm-hmm. in your head give them a bridge towards clarity or peace. And fuck me, Sean, if you and I spend our lives only getting that and nothing else out of our work, then I think we've done okay. Absolutely. It's, uh, to me, praise in, in terms of hearing something's really good. It doesn't really register. I don't really feel anything. Nor does criticism, I think, we both. Because if you believe in, in praise, you have to totally believe in criticism as well. And I'm kind of a wee bit middle of the road, but I completely agree that if somebody says that it helped them, through some period or it was a comfort and I think it's because I can relate so I think maybe 2016 I had a shitty time just I suppose it was circumstantial um just wasn't too happy with with the way things were going and looking back things weren't even that bad uh in that sense but I did feel it and being away from home you know you're you're in I'm in a, a foreign country I don't have my family on my doorstep so there was a period I suppose for about three four months between Christmas and summer arriving. When summer arrives in Barcelona, life becomes great. But that was 
one of the things I would look forward to would be the big interview and I'd be going about doing my work or I'd be cycling or I was at the gym at the beach and it becomes a source of, I suppose, like a source of company. And it's just this, it takes you, because what, what do I love? Football. What do I love? Hearing about people's experiences. What I love about the big interview is you're not listening to a footballer. You're listening to a human who's played the role as a footballer and they're completely opening up in their experiences. And I think probably what shaped me most as an interviewer as well uh, and hearing the way you would conduct those things. So I, if, if anybody can relate to that, how the, the power of enjoying something and becoming so invested in something. There's even some interviews that I've enjoyed so much I could tell you exactly where I was. Like I listened to... <laughs> Uh, Ramon Calderon when I was working in Castel de Fels and I can almost at every point of his interview and as he's speaking I could be like well I could tell you exactly where I was standing because I just I just fucking enjoyed it that much so I it's it's um it's it's a powerful thing and it's it's an incredibly rewarding and humbling position to be in to be to do something that you enjoy and and it provides so much to people I continue to be startled about how similar we are and, and how you put into words things that either I feel or I'm reserved about or I maybe don't, don't express particularly well. And it's remarkable to be hearing that back. And, and Sean, when you say that about Castellar Fittles and Ramon Calderon, number one, I'm going to tell him he'll be chuckled. To, without getting to um, Ivanhoe or Sir Lancelot about this, I, I look around and, and I, I don't think what you and I have been talking about there is journalism. I think it's storytelling and uh, a, a genuine, in my part, clearly you two, a massive curiosity about people and their experiences. And, and therefore, just wrapping up in the beginning, I'd love people to listen to it if they want to. I know we're not here to advertise it, but I think there are there's a there's a um, a library of such different people, different ages and experiences that if one interview isn't for you, I think there might be others that are. But oh, absolutely. One, I think we live in an era when I watch radio and television journalism um, in, in interviewing skill skills become divided in that there are some utterly, unbelievably talented people doing it. And then there's a lot of dross and a lot of sheep and a lot of people mm-hmm. who can't speak, don't listen to the answers, who who are are seem to have, you know, an, a curiosity or an imagination or a vocabulary about the size of a bee. Now that drives me to rage because eventually what happens is you get a limiting of debate, a limiting of expectations, you you, you deaden the listener, and and that's not the type of people that you and I are speaking to they, they might like or disagree or they might not like but our audience we both know that our audiences are sharp and inquisitive they're bright they're they're possibly contrary they'll tell us if they do like they'll tell us if they don't like and mm. and therefore i'll wrap up by saying one of the things that I, i've set out is, is really important to me is that and, and i've seen reviews where people go like you know this would be great if he wasn't so up the arse of the guest or this would be Great if he wasn't sick of Well, dislike it and stick to your position if you want. That's okay. That's your right. But anybody who listens to it and thinks that thinks that I don't mean the things that I say to these people, um, they're wrong. Because I, I've, 
we've, we, we would never, we have never put somebody on because they're famous or because it will command an audience. Mm. I have to be crucially interested in the achievements or the words or the personality of somebody. I have to be, I just don't have time to, to go and joust with somebody I don't have respect for or to, to, to speak to somebody who we, we a priori we know is going to be inarticulate. That's for somebody else and, and I've no interest in that. And I'm not complaining about people's misjudgment of me. I just can't imagine how you can listen to the way the guests react and think that they might feel that they're being fluffed up. Because mm-hmm. often at every interview that I, with somebody I haven't met before, I'll say, right, listen to me. When this microphone's on, you're going to hear phrases and you're going to look at me and go, is that bullshit? Is he fluffing me up there? Is this? And I, and I say to them, don't fucking worry. It's not. And it isn't. <laughs> and I think in those circumstances, when they look at me and whether they think I'm odd or not, they know what they're hearing is sincere. And what that gets mm-hmm. is them relaxing and opening up. And then I hope, just as you do, that the listener will get there get some form of reward for tuning in absolutely i think that definitely comes across um and and, and i think to suggest as well that that's the the guest wouldn't be able to to deduce whether you were being sort of authentic and honest or whether you were being contrived would be very insulting to their intelligence so now you can definitely hear in the way that people open up I've maybe made too much of no, it, I, I totally and, get. And I do believe that you can hear people open up, but it's a point I wanted to make because if anybody comes new to it, mm-hmm. everybody's entitled not to like me or my style, and I've had more than my fill of people telling me that from when I was a kid until now, and that's fine. But if people don't believe that that's genuinely me, then then that's just a, that's an error. That's 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 the but I want to say I genuinely want to say something now that this has been extraordinary I've never heard anybody speak to me like this before I've never in my life seen somebody prepared like this or uh, as articulate as this on things that that we don't normally speak about I get fearful because people often ask me about my life uh, and I, I do enjoy something that's gone back in it but I know I repeat a lot of stories because it's what people ask me about Exactly. And yet, I knew in prepping up for this, listening to you when you talked about your your art, why you do it, who you've spoken to, what you get out of it, I found this genuinely remarkable. And I, and I, I, I love the fact that there are people in everything I've ever turned my hand to who come along and are immediately better, or different, or new, or younger, or fresher. And I'm astounded. So... I, I fully understand <clears throat> why you've got a, a, a loyal and growing audience. I fully understand why people would come on your podcast. And I, I can't wait as you open up your vista to the to the wide range of people that you get on. I, I, I'll be I'll be tuning in and I'll be keen because uh, you have some uh, ability, some ability. I have to say it's been it's been an eye opener for me and and in a totally positive way. That's very, very kind of you to say. I really appreciate that, especially coming from somebody that, again, I don't want to go down the sycophantic route in any way, but somebody I obviously respect so much and have listened to to so much as well. You've been a constant companion in my ear. And uh, as we round up, actually, I would like to say 
And we also strangely share a lot of the same music tastes because I too am a big fan <laughs> of big fan of the Beatles, the Stone Roses, Dean Martin, The Clash, Paul Weller, <laughs> uh, and the, the Stones as well. So when they, we are opening up fairly soon, and as I did say to you in WhatsApp the other day, that I will be camping out in Glasgow Airport. Well, the, the, the only thing ticket, that, so. given the, all the things we said, the only thing that can fuck us up now is if you're teetotal. Oh no, absolutely not. So that's that's All my right. next question. Well, should eighty? Should we go to the the terrace at eighteen eighty one? That's my favourite spot. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Let's just go all over. I think my my tendency, although I'm I, I I rein in slightly more now that you know family man and all that stuff. But um, there's a trail of sort of unhappy bodies littered through my past. So um, fuck it. I I see, just, we'll start with Pisces Del Bar. Get, get in training, so I'd say to you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope Louise is uh, is giving you the pass for going out. Uh, so that should be fine. I'm sure that that'll be. She'll be wanting ready anyway because you know, it's quarantine's I, I, coming to I'll, an end. I'll work my way up to that. Yeah, there'll be there'll be. There'll be <laughs> I'll have tactics to to make sure that they get thumbs up. Yeah. It's like uh, when Billy Conley. You see, you're going out for a pint. Billy Conley said for 15 years his wife thought a pint was this size. When they said he was going out <laughs> for one, it just happens to fill uh, ten liters. Tip for tat, uh, Ray Parler is out here filming with us and uh, we have a good day filming and uh, we go out for gin and tonics afterwards before he gets his flight and he tells me the story about how he said that in his first marriage and I, I don't know the first Mrs P so I'm only taking his word for this, he said that she wasn't particularly good on geography and they they had a house um, up in Birmingham and he, he would, or it was a girlfriend he had to go and visit and he, he would say to her, that the drive from uh, London to Birmingham was four hours, so that um, <laughs> he, he would get two hours extra drinking time. And one night he came home, you know, at four four thirty in the morning, and she's up waiting for him. And he says, "All I knew was she was at the end of the room," and she he said she bounced a full plant pot off my head from ten meters. And he, he says, "He said, I don't know what's what's what is it." And she'd only just, I don't know if she'd looked at a GPS or looked at a map, but she'd figured out that he, from North London to Birmingham, he could have been there in an hour and a half, not four hours. And when she found out, she flew out for him. And, you know, they're not still together, but Ray thought this was the funniest thing in the world, that he got away with it for that long. So, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, Graham, I, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. I look forward to seeing you when I finally get back into El Pratt in, in about a month or so. Um, aye and this has been a pleasure and I'm sure everybody will enjoy it for you at home listening thanks for joining us up until this point and I'll be back again with another episode of Blethered soon Sean that was magnificent Blethered was written recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information go to thebiglight.com From the Big Light Studio.